Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Kerfasi. Today, we're talking with Dr. Haley Hurd-Arnold about genetic testing. Here's a clip from today's show. There are genes that literally control the way you metabolize your food or the potential for vitamin deficiencies or how well you can work out and lose weight. We can literally pinpoint genes to say, this person needs to follow a Mediterranean-style diet to lose weight, or this person is prone to non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so we need to remove gluten from their diet in order to address their autoimmune diseases, or this person definitely can't handle methylfolate in a supplement, so we need to consider calcium folinate or some other form of nutrition supplements to give them. It allows us to customize and really pinpoint those areas of, I don't want to say weakness. That's just a small taste of the great show we've got coming up. Today's podcast is sponsored by Precision Point Diagnostics. Precision Point is a pioneer in food sensitivity testing. Their P88 dietary antigen test was the first test on the market to measure and report immune complexes containing C3D. This single test measures IgE, IgG, IgG4, and complement, also known as C3D, reactions for 88 of the most common foods found in our modern diets. The P88 test helps practitioners identify and address food allergies for patients that are managing chronic illness and address the root cause of the issue. If you're a practitioner, go to rupahealth.com to learn more about this test. And if you're a patient, ask your practitioner about getting tested. All right, let's start the show. Dr. Haley Hurd-Arnold is the co-owner of DNARX, a genetic testing and nutraceutical company that helps practitioners create turnkey systems for their clients. She is a functional medicine practitioner and a chiropractor with a wellness-oriented practice in Houston, Texas called NeuroWorks, where she focuses on the brain, immune, and gut connections leading to optimal health. With a large pediatric population in her practice, she takes special care of kids with neurosensory issues. Dr. Arnold, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I think we all are. This is such an interesting topic, genetics and genetic testing. And with your very, very extensive background in this field, I think we're going to be able to distill this massively complex topic down to a very simple to understand format today. So again, thank you for joining me. And I want to get into this today and start to give our listeners a very important understanding of what genetics truly means to functional and this integrative or root cause medicine versus a standard or conventional medicine route. So in other words, can you explain the practicality of how genetic information can help us in finding the root causes for patients and how that differs from the way that again, that standard or conventional medicine route would use that same information? So the way I see it is in the functional medicine realm, we're really using genetics that can play a major role in dietary and lifestyle 
either tools or tricks or things that we're going to teach our patients to do on their everyday basis, right? Versus a medical route, they might be looking more specifically for disease-oriented genes. So this is where we kind of have to say, okay, what what is the type of genetics that we're really doing? Because genetics is a pretty large field. And for us in the functional or integrative world, we're truly only looking at those clinically applicable dietary and lifestyle genes versus Tay-Sachs or Down syndrome or things that we know are going to make an automatic disease process for someone that we're not necessarily going to give them some vitamin C or folate for to change anything. So it's really just that difference between those two. Plus we're not, you know, we're not doing ancestry or paternity or anything like that. That's an even different class. But as far as what I do, it's purely clinical dietary and nutritional based stuff. That's super interesting. I'm glad you you talked about that. Can you delineate for our listeners that a little bit further so that if someone gets a genetic report, you're obviously looking at it from a very different standpoint, as you mentioned. So a lot of people might say, well, my grandfather had red hair and my sister has red hair. So this means that I'm going to have red hair. And that's kind of that cool and nice information to have. But from your standpoint, you're looking at these things a little bit differently and how these genetic markers really impact people on their day-to-day lives. Can you talk about that a little bit more and just those differences? Yeah. So if you want to think of it this way, instead of it being your, your phenotype, the way you look, the way you present to the world, which I think most people assume is what genetics are, they either think it's just what their hereditary background is, their ancestry, or they think of it's eye color, hair color, widow's peak, dimples, all those things, the way they look. We're not worried about that, right? As functional root cause medicine doctors, I couldn't care less what color your hair is. However, there are genes that literally control the way you metabolize your food or the potential for vitamin deficiencies or how well you can work out and lose weight. There's all sorts of things that we think of from a functional perspective where we're helping our patients with diet, lifestyle, stress reduction, metabolism, all that kind of stuff, we can literally pinpoint genes to say, this person needs to follow a Mediterranean style diet to lose weight, or this person is prone to non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So we need to remove gluten from their diet in order to address their autoimmune diseases. Or this person definitely can't handle methylfolate in a supplement. So we need to consider calcium folinate or some other form of nutrition supplements to give them. So it's really, it allows us to customize and really pinpoint those areas of, I don't want to say weakness, but it's inherent. I got, I mean, it could be a weakness. <laughs> it's those little areas of your genetic code that are going to dictate how your body functions on a biochemical level, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up that exact term biochemical standpoint, because I think that's the foundation of root cause medicine is to address everybody's unique biochemistry or that biochemical individuality, our own blueprint on the world, which each of us have that. And as you put, we have to take this from a case-by-case basis, how this is going to have real-life applications versus just knowing the color of your hair or whether you're going to have dimples or widow's peak. It doesn't really those things we can't really change in our lives or via lifestyle or diet or anything else. 
But this application of what you're talking about and using this genetic testing from a root cause perspective is uh, really important. So thank you for that. And so usually we want to go over testing a little bit later in the show, but we're, we're going to spill a little bit, all the beans, I would say, almost earlier on today. And I really want to expand on this root cause perspective versus that standard approach of when we're assessing genetic information. So when you're running testing for a patient, would the markers be similar or the same to that in the standard route or standard genetic testing as ancestry or anything else? Or are these markers completely different? And obviously, can they be applied differently if they are the same markers? Yeah. So a couple of different things. If you're going for, let's say, one of the big named companies that everyone seems to use, they typically do either a whole genome or exomes or just an entire genetic profile, if you will, but they don't necessarily regulate or verify a lot of the information you're getting. So you can distill a lot of the SNPs and genes that we're going to look at at our company from those bigger profiles, but you're not going to get any information. You're still going to have to take it to a third-party interpretation software to understand it. But not all of the big standard companies do all of the genes that would be useful in clinical setting. On the flip side of that, you can, if you do have all, like, for example, we do 40 genes on our wellness profile, right? You could take those 40 genes and still interpret the information a little differently. Your results are never going to change, but the way you use the genes presented can. Let me make that a little bit clearer. I, as a chiropractor, love doing a lot of musculoskeletal stuff, right? I could look at vitamin D genes or vitamin A genes or even vitamin K genes and think of it from a musculoskeletal perspective versus maybe a cardiologist or an endocrinologist who has a completely different lens might look at the same genes, but say, something different in their realm. So you can definitely use the same genetic information and pull so much useful knowledge from that. It just really depends on the, the lenses you're looking through, right? So I think I answered. Did I answer all of your questions? No, you, you certainly did. And that is so cool. I love how you really, you really just added another layer onto this as not only can you interpret these differently on paper, but practitioner to practitioner can also have different interpretations and applications into their own specialties. As you mentioned, a chiropractor could interpret a genetic test for application purposes differently than that of a cardiologist, than that of a gastroenterologist, and so on and so forth. So I really love that. It's such valuable information. So what would you say are the biggest reasons or the most common reasons for people to get a genetic test done? Ooh, I love answering this question because I have I have a particular bias here. I will tell you that. I think it makes the patients more compliant to your care plan. Number one, genetics are your blueprints. You They're not going to change, so you only ever have to run it once, right? And it really gives you that insight into this is how this person functions. And then I can be over here, my little my little functional medicine mind going and say, okay, I'm going to tweak nutrition here. I'm going to tweak diet there. I'm going to tweak stress management here. It really gives you the blueprint of how they function. 
And then you get to roll with it as a clinician to say, this is our game plan that's specific to that patient. And when patients see that, they're like, oh, well, this doctor truly is understanding me individually. It's not a cookie cutter approach. It's not a protocol that you do on every single patient that walks through your door. It's, oh, Haley's genes say she needs to do this diet, these nutrients, and these are the additional blood work or stool tests or whatever would be useful for her as an individual patient. And then we get to put a plan of action together that is just so easy for them to follow because they see it. This is me on paper. It's not going to change. It's just what we need to do. And that is my absolute number one reason is patient compliance, because you're actually showing them that you can create an individual care plan for them. Yes, that is so true. And as you mentioned, this really reiterates that point of root cause medicine, because everybody has this unique blueprint, this genetic blueprint that we cannot change, but impacts our health in various ways. So that one size fits all approach, that cookie cutter approach for chronic health issues. This is why that also does not work because everybody has a different genetic imprint and blueprint that we need to take accordingly and apply accordingly. So I can see how that really impacts patient compliance and really can hit some people to the core, surely, because they see, oh my God, this is the genes. These are the genetics that I'm working with. And whether they're, let's say, good or favorable or less favorable, either way, there's things that they can do to improve them and impact them and overall, again, help out their overall health. So yeah, love that. So would you say that there are certain types of conditions that warrant genetic testing more than others, for example? I would say, honestly, I think everyone should do at least wellness-based genetic testing just so you understand how your body's functioning. But if you do have a particular niche in practice, uh, the things I see more often where genetics makes a faster, let's say more accurate result for clinicians and patients alike, definitely autoimmune issues, especially if you're dealing with patients who don't necessarily want to change their diet. Like I'm going to have to prove to you that you need to be gluten-free. Here we go. Let's do genes. I would say kids, especially kiddos on the spectrum, that's who I deal with on a daily basis. And a lot of people love using it for cardiovascular disease, but I feel like sometimes it's a little bit more of a, well, everyone has certain gene variations, so it doesn't make a huge difference. So I don't know that I would even go there. It could definitely be useful for hormone and endocrine issues as well. But I would say autoimmune and kiddos are the number one and two people that genetics makes the biggest difference for. Now, I will quick side note, the practitioners who can do pharmacogenetics, which is a whole other field, that makes a huge difference for neuropsychiatry as well. So, I think the most important point, as you brought up here, is that there's multiple applications. So regardless of condition, there obviously genetic testing can be warranted for nearly everything. And since yeah. you brought up this topic of pharmacogenetics, can you just talk a little bit about that, what that is, and for all the practitioners that can go down that route and utilize this for patients, how this can improve their patient's health? Absolutely. So pharmacogenetics specifically, it's big in the field of psychiatry. So psychology, psychiatry, anyone who is dealing with medications for mental health, it's 
specifically a way of understanding how the body's metabolizing certain types of drugs. So if you're on an SSRI or I don't know all my, my mental health drugs at all, but if you're on any of those medications, you can look at certain genes to see if they will be able to metabolize them properly. And then instead of going from pill to pill and trying to you know, trial and error it for your mental health conditions, you can get super specific. I see it in uh, psychiatry more than anything. That's fascinating. Is that same approach, can that be applied to, say, the quote-unquote natural type of health or natural medicine field with uh, herbs and vitamins and supplements and those types of things? Yeah. So I would say that the nutrigenomics, what we do at our company, the more wellness-oriented stuff, that's exactly what we're doing is we're using the genes to say, okay, you're going to be prone to needing this form of vitamin A, or you might need more serotonin boosting nutrients like 5-HTP or Bacopa, that kind of stuff. So absolutely, you can use it for natural options. Amazing, amazing. Now, I think we've already kind of gotten into the weeds here, Dr. Arnold, in terms of genetics, as as we've talked, this is a pretty in-depth conversation. But before we go even further, I really want everybody to discuss from this super basic standpoint, just so that we can all wrap our heads around this topic, the hierarchy of how genetics really works. So, and we know yep. that there's alleles and genotypes and phenotypes and genes. Can you talk a little bit more about how this actually operates and, and then again, impacts us in our lives? Absolutely. So when you're doing genetic testing, overall, we're looking at our DNA, right? We're looking at our genetic code, if you will. And when it comes to testing, you're really going for gene specific. So each gene creates either a protein or some sort of biochemical process in your body that tells your body how to run. So if you have, for example, the BCMO1 gene, that gene tells your body to convert dietary vitamin A or your beta carotene specifically into a usable active cellular vitamin A called a retinoid. If there is a variation, which I'll explain in just a second, in that genetic code, then you may not be as efficient at that vitamin A conversion. Does that make sense? Yes. So we have the gene overall. So the genes are always called something like five letters put together, like BCM1 and MTHFR, and they they sound like you're playing Scrabble. And then we have the actual alleles that are your inherited portion of that gene. So mom gives you an allele, dad gives you an allele that makes the Anthony allele. So that makes your pairing. That pairing is what we're really testing for in a genetic test. We want to know, did you get an A and an A from mom and dad, an A and a T, a C and a G? We want to know those base pairs. The way those alleles are put together determines how that gene functions. Fair enough? Good to know. So phenotypes is the physical appearance of that gene. So we're not really doing, you know, that's more of your hair color, eye color, that kind of information. The genotyping though, is what we're looking at those two alleles together. Now, if we take that a a bit further, we always say we're testing for something called a SNP, right? A SNP, SNP, or single nucleotide polymorphism, that slight change in allele pairing. So if one gene is supposed to be AA, well, maybe your SNP is AC. And it's just a different change in the alleles. 
And that change is what determines how the gene actually functions. So helpful. I love that. And I'm glad you brought up SNP or SNP, the single nucleotide polymorphism, because some people have gone to the doctor in the past few years, and I'm sure their doctor says, well, you have that MTHFR SNP, which as you mentioned, and they're looking at their doctor like they're going to hit them upside the head because they just called them a bad word, which it's yeah. really funny how it's actually labeled that. But can you talk a little bit about what that MTHFR gene is? Because it's very commonly talked about SNP, I'm sorry, not gene, but SNP, as well as how these SNPs actually, again, affect people. We've talked about this, but another layer, how they affect people and how they relate to getting to the root issue of things, how they can stand in the way, put up those walls, and we have to walk around them, essentially. Sure. MTHFR is the gene that helps your body take dietary folate that you get from things like green leafy veggies like spinach or beef liver or fish, that kind of stuff takes dietary folate and converts it into usable methyl folate, which is the active bioform of, of vitamin B9, right? So folate is vitamin B9. And when there is a variant or polymorphism within the MTHFR gene, it makes you less effective at converting dietary folate into methyl folate. So Everyone loves talking about MTHFR. I jokingly call it the gateway gene because it's the first thing people hear about. And it's just going to get you right into testing more genetics. It is one of many folate genes. It's not the only gene we need to worry about. But the reason that people love this gene is because folate as a nutrient is required for over 200 different processes in the body. Everything from hormone conversion to neurotransmitter conversion to detoxification, which is where most people like talking about it, to DNA replication, you name it, folate is required for that process. And when you have an MTHFR variation, which is extremely common, by the way, it just makes you less efficient at getting it from your food. So if you don't already eat a spinach salad at every meal and beef liver for dinner every day, you may not be getting enough folate from your diet. And then you throw in a, an MTHFR variation on top of that, you might naturally be 70% less able to get enough folate from your diet. And then many other potential blockers, genetically or environmentally or lifestyle-wise, maybe you become folate deficient. And if you are folate deficient, guess what? Those 200 processes that I just mentioned won't work as well as they ought to. I love that. We're going to use that hashtag of Hashtag gateway gene from now on. So the reason this particular gene is so important, I don't think it's the gene itself that's the issue. I think it's the folate deficiency that's the issue. That becomes so critical in root cause medicine because folate is required for so many things. So if you are an OBGYN dealing with pregnant women and they're having miscarriages, guess what? They might have an MTHFR variation. If you're a psychiatrist that goes more the natural route and you're dealing with anxiety and depression, and you can't seem to find a drug to help them, guess what? It might be an MTHFR variation, all of which is causing them to be folate deficient. And that's creating a lot of their symptoms. And again, as you're putting this specific SNP and how it relates to all different types of practitioners and health conditions, this is again where this genetic impact really spreads its tentacles and starts to affect all areas of life and why taking that root cause approach is so important. So I want to dive further into that, this understanding a little bit, Dr. Arnold. And I want to ask you a question here. 
Some health professionals say that genes only have a small impact on our health, while others say that it has a very large impact. So what is your overall view and say opinion on this? And is there truly any way that we can really measure this? So I think it's both and. So the number one, yes, genes are, I could have a a genetic variation and never have the problem that I would think it would create. Totally plausible. But I could also have super perfect genes. No one does. (laughs) I could have perfect genes theoretically and still have all sorts of issues because maybe my lifestyle is not as awesome. So I hate the analogy just because of the actual topic, but everyone says that genes load the gun and your environment pulls trigger, right? I do think that your environment probably plays a lot bigger role in the way you actually express health. But I think your genetic blueprint, if you were to honor it and understand your potential, or at least from a nutritional perspective, I think you could create the environment that makes you even healthier than you ever were before. So it's both. I don't think anyone can prove one way or the other. And I don't think anyone could prove me wrong either. So, <laughs> But I do think you need to be aware of your genetic potential. Now, that is to say, do I want to know your BRCA gene and you, if you have potential for breast cancer? No, not really. I would rather pay attention to the genes we know we can really affect on a daily level with our diet, lifestyle, and mental health stress reduction. So did I answer your question? Yes, and I agree. It's so important. Incoming dad joke here, the only perfect genes are the ones you buy at the store brand new right off the shelf. (laughs) And then you wash them and it's all bad. (laughs) You just have to throw that funny thing. Now, it sounds like from a perspective of hope for all those listeners out there, say they do get a genetic report back and it says they have, let's say, unfavorable quote unquote genes. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's still a lot that people can do to improve the outcome or so that gene does not express itself as much. Is that what exactly you're saying as well? Absolutely. So if I had a propensity for low vitamin D, low vitamin A, and I needed to be gluten-free according to my genes, well, I have the ability as someone with complete control over my nutrition about what I'm going to eat and what kind of supplements I'm going to take. And I could take that a step further and say, you know what? I happen to know that I'm an autoimmune hot mess and I'm going to take even more precautions to reduce my inflammation, to get enough sleep, to drink clean water. Like there's so many things we can do from a lifestyle perspective that really allow our genetic variations to potentially work even better than they were. So I think we're in complete control over how we treat our bodies and knowing our genetic blueprint simply allows us to make better choices. I'm so, again, glad that you talked about that because so many people will say, oh my God, I have these terrible genes on my report and I'm going to develop this and that. And it's so important that they understand just because it's on paper does not mean that it will inevitably become true. So thanks for talking about that further. So what other tests Or are there any other tests that you like to utilize in addition to the genetic reports that give you insight into a patient's health condition? Absolutely. So I am never going to just do genetics. So I like genetics as the foundation. 
So I always run them first, but I also pair them with real-time labs, the things that you're going to have to do on a yearly basis because they change. So I absolutely adore micronutrient or organic acid testing because that tells me, hey, I know if I pair it with genes, genetics says this person is prone to deficiency in vitamin, whatever. And then the micronutrient or organic acid test tells me this person is currently deficient in whatever vitamin we're looking at. So then I can say, aha, so Jane Doe might be prone to vitamin C deficiency, let's say, and she's already complaining of things like psoriasis or upper respiratory infections all the time or joint pain. Well, guess what? We know vitamin C plays a huge role in those. And then I look at her micronutrient test and I see, oh, well, yeah, she's tanked. So let's give her additional vitamin C. And because we did the genetics first, Jane Doe now says, well, I know I have this propensity, so maybe I should do this micronutrient test on a yearly basis just to make it a part of my wellness care. And that's what I absolutely love doing. Now, so I take care of kids, so I'm always doing organic acids because it's urine-based. So I don't like to poke and prod my little four-year-olds, so (laughs) it's much easier for me. But you could also pair this with, say, like hormone testing from Dutch labs or whatever. If you see that they all of their methylation-oriented genes, and that's a whole other podcast right there, all their methylation-oriented genes are wonky, then maybe their Dutch test isn't going to be as sufficient as it ought to. So you can do the things to tweak hormones. And then stool testing, I would say, is probably the only other one. So Because we can look at how they're actually metabolizing and do they have enough digestive enzymes? Are they metabolizing their fat and carbs properly? So you can really pair it with anything. I love that. All super valuable tests and really information that you need as that healthcare practitioner to really put those pieces together. I think using that genetic test as that foundation is such a good jumping off point as well to really help that patient understand what they're dealing with from that cellular perspective along with those other tests. So yeah, truly informative. Now, Dr. Arnold, for the sake of humor of the name, not humor of the condition, but humor of the name, And out of just curiosity for our listeners, I want everybody to know there's an actual condition known as maple syrup urine disease. I know it sounds very unique, intriguing almost, and it actually is exactly what it sounds like. And I know this could be maybe in the category of some of these other unusual conditions like laughing death syndrome or Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which are real documented medical diseases. Dude, me. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to steer this conversation too much off the rails, but just for the sake of learning about these types of things, can you please go down that route and let everybody know what this is? Because this is an actual genetic condition. And then give some examples of real, more, let's say more common types of conditions that you see on a daily basis that's where genetic testing can actually help resolve patients' conditions. Because obviously some of these conditions, as you put, there's there's not a lot you can do for some of these. And then others, there's a ton you can do, I think. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? So that's one of those, what I would call a medical genetic issue. One of those things where I think it's some ridiculous number, like one in 185,000 kiddos or something are born with that. That when basically their pee smells like maple syrup, if I remember correctly. And it causes, if it's not treated, it's basically a genetic change that, going off the top of my head here, (laughs) if I remember correctly. 
So genetic change is basically they don't metabolize specific amino acids properly. And so their urine ends up smelling like maple syrup. And if it's left untreated, they end up with things like seizures, I'm pretty sure. But that's a good example of something that I would classify as a medical genetic problem where if, and this is infants, by the way, you're not going to obviously have it as like a 35 year old. You would have had it as a baby. This is one of those times where I would say, okay, that baby needs to go to a medical geneticist, which is a whole other field. And that's where you're looking for different types of either chromosomal abnormalities or genetic mutations that are going to create lifelong disease processes. From a root cause perspective, we really want to look at those more chronic adult-oriented things or even what I would call the childhood alphabet soup, like ADHD, sensory processing disorder, autism, that kind of stuff. Those long-term things that don't necessarily happen to a, a newborn infant baby. Those are the things that are typically more a chronic lifestyle factor as well. So you could look at genetics for carbohydrate metabolism. One thing I absolutely love talking about genetics for is weight loss because that can be a huge trigger because if someone's not eating their the right forms of unrefined carbs and they're eating too many simple sugars, then they may be more prone to gaining weight based on their genetic potential. If you are a kiddo on the spectrum and have a lot of issues with gut and immune function, well, you may have certain genes like FUT2 that determine how well your gut microbiome is really going to work. There's so many things you can talk about with with just wellness-based genetics, but typically it's going to be those chronic, we can like to call lifestyle-oriented things, or it could be even as simple as how you're responding to mold and histamines in your environment. If you're on a histamine overload, it could create anxiety and migraines and rashes and acne and all sorts of stuff. So, Yeah, so important. And, and again, these are, as you put true genetic medical conditions where they're impacting an infant or newborn. And they're very serious conditions, just very, they're interesting names that we apply to these different types of conditions. It's not that they're humorous in themselves. They're obviously very serious and and, uh, important to look at. But I wanted to make sure that we make sure that everybody understands the differences between some of these conditions you hear about genetic medical conditions versus some of these genetic information that we can apply to these chronic health issues that, again, are very, very rampant, very common in today's society. I think a pretty good rule of thumb is if it's happening to the person as an infant, it's probably a medical genetic issue. If it's a you know 40-year-old walking into your clinic, probably not a medical genetic issue. Good to know. Good to know. So can you give us an example of, say, you mentioned weight loss, a patient who is looking to lose weight. What type of genetic tests Are there any specific markers that you would run that you would look at? Can you give us an example of a patient that you have taken down that path and this genetic test and interpretation style has really benefited that patient? Yeah. So I'll I'll use a case study because I always like talking about her. One of my favorite patients from, she's been with me for years. She came up to me and said, okay, Haley, I need to lose like 20 pounds before my niece's wedding. And by the way, that's in about eight weeks. And I'm like, Okay, thanks for that heads up. (laughs) And she said, under no circumstances, am I going gluten-free or dairy-free? Because I know you like to make everyone do that. (laughs) I'm like, okay, fine. 
And then I said, well, what are you willing to do? And she's like, just do your genetic thing on me. Do do whatever you do. And I said, okay, but if it comes back a certain way, are you going to actually listen to me? She's like, yeah, fine, whatever. So we do the genetic test on her and it comes back. In fact, she has three genetic markers for gluten sensitivity, one of which is a celiac marker. So essentially she needed to be gluten-free. And then she had a variation in the APOA gene, which is a marker that says high fat dairy will make you gain weight. So the two things, I mean, there were some other vitamin things that she needed to do, but the two things she told me she absolutely wouldn't do are the two things she needed to do to lose weight. And I am happy to say, this was at Christmas time, by the way. So she was loving her cookies and Christmas-oriented traditions, mind you. So she said, okay, fine. I will go gluten-free and dairy-free, but I'm still eating the way I eat. And I'm like, okay, I can only lead you so far. That's fine. She lost 30 pounds in five weeks going gluten-free and dairy-free on what she calls the cookie and wine diet. It was just that she replaced her regular cookies with gluten-free cookies and she gave up dairy. So she was completely dairy-free. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll take that as a win. And she was happy and she kept it off. So that's one example of actually losing weight at a relatively, I would say that's a fairly rapid pace, but still in a very healthy way. And she kept it off and was great. She's still to this day, four years later, gluten and dairy-free. So makes a big difference. But there are specific genes that really deal with carbohydrate and fat metabolism that I use in weight loss situations as well. So we do test for FTO, which is called the obesity gene. That basically says a variation in that gene. If you are prone to eating a lot of simple sugars or refined carbohydrates, it's going to be a really fast way to gain weight. And one that I really like a lot that most panels don't test is the Amy1 gene. And it is actually a gene that says variations are going to make you prone to gaining weight, eating refined carbs as well. But it's even cooler because it says it'll also make you prone to dental caries, cavities. So anytime I see patients that they keep getting these, especially as kids, they keep getting cavities and don't understand why, it's really just the simple sugars because you're not making enough amylase in the, the saliva to break down carbohydrates. That actually breaks down your enamel and it makes you gain weight on the flip side. So those are the things I really look at. There's a few more genes specifically with fat metabolism. I look at ADIPOQ. Like I said, it sounds like Scrabble game over here where some people's literally can't do higher fat diets. They would focus better on a low fat diet in order to reduce inflammation and protect their cardiovascular system. So when you get into genetic testing from a weight loss or metabolism perspective, you start to notice that all of these popular, I'll say diets and ideas that we tend to use in functional medicine can often be, they can often backfire on you. So no, that is amazing. Thank you so much for going over some of those examples. And I think the big picture here and the major point that you're bringing up is first, some people need to get played the Rolling Stones song. I think it's called You Can't Always Get What You Want. Always Get What You Want. Yeah. But aside from that, there's always solutions and other alternatives. So even if somebody is more prone to one thing, they can still have an alternative and still benefit from something else or still get the end goal that they're ultimately looking for. So thanks for bringing up all of those different aspects, specifically genes and that case study that you've used. So really, really helpful. 
And Dr. Arnold, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I just have a couple last questions for you. The first one is, what do you think the future of genetic testing and treatments look like? That's a good question. In reality, I would hope that everyone's doing my tests and then I can help them all. But I think we're just at the beginning. So I do believe the more doctors and practitioners that hop on to the functional medicine or root cause bandwagon, the more they realize genetics can be a useful clinical tool, the more patients will realize genetics is great as well. But I think well, there's a lot of talk about, are we going to switch to doing whole genome or whole exosome types of tests? I don't think we know enough about what the whole genome actually does in that regard. And I also don't know that the whole genome is clinically useful for, at least from my perspective, but I think genetics is even for oncologists, I'm an MD Anderson company. So everything here is cancer oriented at Houston. So they're using genetic testing to figure out what treatments would be best for you, especially in terms of like breast cancer and leukemia and that kind of stuff. So genetics is wide and varied in terms of how we can apply it to our healthcare field that I think it's just now about to explode. So I would agree with that. We are just on the verge of new information and technology. And these things have been growing and growing year after year. And so I I agree. I think it's just going to continue to exponentially grow. So very fascinating area of study. And Dr. Arnold, if you could give one tip or recommendation to a patient that is suffering with any of the hundreds of different types of health conditions that are plaguing the world today, what would that be regarding genetic testing? I would get wellness-oriented or nutrigenomic testing done just so you understand how your biochemistry functions. Now, that's easier said than done. I will say that because you really have to know, like not every test gives you the information in a clear-cut manner. So you really either have to be working with a practitioner, ideally, or order a very particular type of test to understand what it means. With that said, genetics alone is never the only thing I would do. You need to pair it with real-time, how are you functioning today testing. So that's really like that. Love it. Totally agree. Dr. Arnold, again, thank you so much for joining me on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. We went over a lot of great material from how you apply genetic testing from that root cause functional medicine perspective to what single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs are to how really these genetics can impact our lives and our environment and vice versa, along with some case studies. So really, really valuable. I hope everybody enjoyed this today. And again, huge shout out to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure and look forward to chatting next time. The Root Cause Medicine Podcast is brought to you by Rupa Health. To find out more about us and how we are changing the lives of patients and practitioners across the U.S., head to rupahealth.com. And then make sure to search for Root Cause Medicine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Rupa Health, thanks for listening.